Live from Sydney, this is General Ike, Building Jerusalem. Welcome to Midnight in America, your source for the most provocative global affairs content on the internet. This week's guest is General Ike, host of the Building Jerusalem podcast, who joins us to discuss his upcoming U.S. friendship tour. It's midnight in America, two o'clock in the afternoon in Sydney, Australia. General Ike, what time is it in Jerusalem? I believe in Jerusalem right now it's 7 a.m., although I am uh, currently doing my own show from uh, Sydney as a you. So, so you're not actually well. in Jerusalem. What? Why are you building Jerusalem from Sydney? Uh, that's that's an interesting question. Um, I think like the the going into the podcast, the idea behind building Jerusalem was not that I'd always be in the physical city of Jerusalem, but I was uh, I was very inspired by the the poetry of William Blake um, and his own rooting in the older um, prophetic works of of this idea of Jerusalem okay. as the um, the heavenly city, the ideal the ideal society that we strive towards, regardless of geography. So most of us know William Blake as the author of The Lion and the Lamb. At least in the United States, we had to read that in high school as a required poem in our anthologies. But I don't know much more about William Blake. Can you tell us a little bit? Uh, yeah, sure. I just um, he wrote a lot of uh, more what would you say conventionally accessible poetry. Um, and then he also had these these deep mystical visions that he struggled to sort of get onto the page over the course of many years, and his um, his works are a sort of um, uh, what would you say like a stepping stone between sort of the classical uh, the classical biblical and, and other prophetic works and the source uh, a lot of modern poetry. So um, Ginsberg refers to him and draws on his works and his. Um, his, his, uh, he, he seems to be very like placed within a sort of context in which the, um, the, the poet was sort of looking at his work as, as, a, um, as a natural successor to the work of the, the prophet as described in the old biblical terms and trying to make that connection. Well, the prophet, when, when people say the prophet, often they mean the prophet Muhammad or, or the prophet, uh, you know, some other prophet. When you say the, when you say the prophet, well, you have to explain for, I mean, you know, our, our, our listeners are going to be of all religions and, you, you know, all backgrounds. I mean, what do you mean by the prophet? Well, for Blake, I think the prophet was, um, he was, he would uh, specifically be drawing on the old uh, prophets of the Jewish works and the Christian works, obviously Jesus, okay. uh, but also like very substantially from um, from you know Isaiah and Ezekiel, and he talks about the um, he talks a lot about the uh, poetic soul being at the heart of of um, the prophetic faith of Judaism and Christianity, and he to him what right. that that sort of um, that uh, unknown beyond that moves the artist to, into creation is the same for what we, what you would think of as the secular poet and what you would think of as the um, religious prophet. And all of them are moved from the great beyond oh. into, yeah, creative acts. So he really sees a, acts. A, you know, a convergence or an interweaving of the religious and the secular life. Mm -hmm. and, and is that what's Very behind so. building Jerusalem in your own work? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, there's a... There was like a long period when I was trying to figure out um, 
how how high an ideal could I reasonably um, could I reasonably be moving towards? What sort of like how how good could things get if they were going well? And I think that um, that sort of led me to um, look at uh, religious, I mean, foreign religious texts, and also the religious texts of my own upbringing with fresh eyes, because um, I think there's a sort of there's a stale dogmatism that's at the heart of a lot of what um, uh, what puts people off um, these works, and I think there's a there are there's a there's something very um, very very beautiful and very elevating to be gleaned from the midst of it if we can if we can get past the the, the tawdriness. Right. I don't know if that and answers how, your question. Well, it sort of does. I mean, really, I guess where we need to get is uh, I, I, now I'll I'll put the link to your podcast in the comments section once this video is posted. But uh, how does this relate to the podcast? I mean, what are you actually doing on the podcast? I think the 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 principal. Um, thing I'm trying to do on the podcast is go into genuine conversations with a, as far as I, I, I'm able, a real sense of humility to go and meet with people who uh, in, in one way or another are um, aiming themselves towards a better world in, in, in a very, very broad sense and, um, and really trying to, through conversation, uncover what, what, uh, what it is that they're able to communicate about those efforts. And then to um, to allow myself and and listeners to sort of draw from that stuff that will help us us, us in our own personal efforts. Right, right, and and why? Uh, if you'll forgive me, I know it's a you know maybe it's just a personal sure. conceit, but why General Ike? What does that have to do with all of this? <laughs> I assume that I assume oh, that your real name is not Ike, and that you are not a general in any recognized armed forces. <laughs> Yeah, I am. Um, uh, it, it's true. It's true. There, there. As far as I'm aware, I've I've never been made a general in any in any um, genuine uh, armed forces. It's it's. Uh, I don't know. It's a kind of stupid name. Um, but I I sort of no. It's, that's not fair. I was uh, my my teacher in in Jerusalem actually recommended it to me. He was like, go for General Ike, and I said that's ridiculous, and it's. It, it's um, it's it's it'll never fly, and also it sounds awful. And he was like, no, 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 no. It's very, it's very, um, it's very in keeping with American American um, popular culture nicknames at the moment. And he gave us an example. I think the fact that LeBron James um, is called King James. Uh -huh. And I thought, well, you know, it, it, he he pushed at me for a while in that regard, and I. Eventually, I thought I, I could see it from his point of view, and so I'm hoping that eventually everyone else can as well. And I don't know if you want to reveal your legal name, but is Ike a uh, possible nickname for your actual name, or is Ike just pulled out of the air? No, it's 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 very much a, it's very much a um, a real nickname. I mean, my my Hebrew name is Yitzchak, which is not easily right. pronounceable for a lot of people. Um, which would be Isaac in English, just often, to. For people right. who may not be aware, right? Yes. Isaac in English. Yeah, and then I was I was actually at a what was I doing? I think I was doing the Alexander technique of all things, and someone um, mentioned to me, have, has, "Have have you ever been called Ike?" And I thought, "No, I haven't." And that's really interesting. And so I started playing with that, and I found that I liked it. So there's no connection to uh, President Eisenhower of the United States. There is there is something of a connection in the sense that uh, he was. Um, 
he if especially for a figure of his um what would you say uh conformity like he was he was very um very orthodox in a lot of ways he was in the military and then in the presidency two of the most conservative organizations and from those positions he uh encouraged citizens to really um take a something of a skeptical attitude towards their own uh systems and i think that's something that i that i uh in in many ways struggle to emulate because i think that it's very easy to sort of throw walls at the to throw stones at the walls of the academy from the outside and it's very easy to grow docile from inside and it's very tricky to um very hard to sort of play both those things at once it's very difficult to like be pushing the um the slow conservative society building agenda and also be constantly looking out for like the, the more liberal um uh opportunities to take a novel turn Right. Uh, speaking of America, I, I know we're going to talk about your upcoming U.S. friendship tour, but I'm curious if you'd be willing to talk about your previous U.S. friendship tour, which I think many people listening might be just thrilled to hear about. Could you tell us a little bit about your last tour of America? Uh, yeah, sure. I, um, what was it? It was oh, 2013, I want to say. In 2015, I'm not certain. I think 2013, and um, I would I just read uh, The Great Gatsby, and the whole way through it, I would sort of um, I was just kind of I, you know I, I put myself through it in a sense because you know I, I I knew that it was real literature, and the whole way through I was like I'm not sure if I like it or if I don't, and then the last page there's just this explicit coda that sort of hits you over a, over a page narration like a steam train, and it really um, it really sort of stirred stirred up my spirit. Uh, I'd always had this fascination for America. I mean, I, I was born and grew up in a, here in Australia, but I always had this fascination for America, and that really um, sparked it again. And the, I wanted very much and you're, to. You're, you're yeah. straining my memory, but I think that last page was about the virtues of the Midwest. Is that about him going back to the Midwest? Uh, uh, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. So he, um, it starts. Okay. I, I, I um, on the last, on the last night with my trunk packed and my car sold to the grocer, I went over and looked at the huge, incoherent failure of a house, of the house once more. I, at some point, I committed the whole thing to memory. I could probably pull a good chunk of it out. But um, yeah, it's, it's the, the narrator about to leave after the whole, all the the, the hubbub has um, subsided, and just reflecting on on um, how how much um, Gatsby's dream was something chaotic and, and unreachable and how that sort of, um, that intense striving for that dream is always, is always wow. uh, you know, tragic and unachievable but still really important in some ineffable way. It talks about this, the Dutch sailors first arriving in America, all of that. And then, and, and that inspired you to, to do what? Oh, so that inspired me to, um, what was it? I, I flew across to New York, and then I hitchhiked from New York to Los right. Angeles. So not a lot of Americans hitchhike these days. <laughs> what was your experience no, of hitchhiking? No, I the hard way. <laughs> of hitchhiking in America. How did people react to you? How did they uh, treat you? Oh, um... You see, it's, it's, when you say how people treated me, that's, that's, a, that's a tricky one because I think a big, a big part of it was um, uh, like moving past 
the the many many people who weren't interested in in um, picking up a hitchhiker. But I sort of discovered quite early um, that it wasn't really a done thing. Like I made it from. I think I, I sort of got, I walked across the George Washington Bridge from New York into New Jersey and I got a ride to um, a truck stop on the New Jersey Turnpike and I figured truckers, hundreds of truckers going through this, easy to get a ride. Um, and apparently had I tried 30 years earlier it would have been no problem, but right. um, most truckers now belong to fleets rather than having their own rigs and the rules of the fleet are if you pick up a hitchhike and we find out about it you're fired. Right. So it was a lot harder than uh, than I expected. <laughs> Do you have any good stories? I mean, stop. I, I'd love to take a few minutes. Just like I I I know you have some magnificent stories, but are, are there any you know from that time that you'd like to share? That uh, I think people would love to hear it. If you have any you'd like to, to tell us about. Yeah, sure. Um, I, it's it's interesting. What springs to mind uh, is and uh, not so much the um, uh, what would you say the triumphs as the terrors. Like when you say that, that, that I, I'm instantly thinking of the times I almost got robbed and the, the times I most feared for my life, um, uh-huh. which it's interesting. I suppose like the, in a way, the most beautiful and the most terrifying moments both happened in, um, in uh, the Rockies in Colorado. So it was at that point, I, I think uh-huh. I was just starting to get into my swing and realizing that, yeah, prob- I'm probably going to make it. This is looking pretty good. Yeah. And I um, continental divide coming up. Right, uh, right, exactly. Yeah. It's it's very very encouraging, you know. Um, and so I, I was coming through the Rockies. Beautiful, by the way. The the Colorado Rockies. I don't know how many um, how many listeners have have it within their power to visit the Rockies and haven't yet. But I highly recommend it. Um, I and I went as I was going through. I was um, I think I I ended up getting dropped off in Glenwood Springs. And uh, I had this rule so, so as to keep the sort of um, pioneer spirit sort of alive in me that I didn't, I never paid for accommodation. So I didn't know if I, where I was going to sleep. I didn't know. Um, so if someone offered me a roof over my head, I could take it. But otherwise, I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't pay for one. I'd find somewhere else to sleep. So I was in Glenwood Springs, this little town in the Rockies. And I, um, I went up into the... Uh, into the woods to to find somewhere to lay out my sleeping bag, and um, I was just uh, I just lay out on a on the side of a on the side of a mountain amongst the trees, and I was very tired and I was very ready to just fall asleep right there, just leaning against my backpack, and then it started to drizzle, so I um, I took I took my backpack back on and I went down the the mountain. And I found this structure that I um, had seen on the way up and tried to get some shelter. I didn't know it at the time, I, but I found out later that it was an abandoned quarry. So that was the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're sleeping alone in an abandoned quarry. Okay. And where does this go? Well, so where it goes is this. The, um, the abandoned quarry is, uh, it didn't have, um, it didn't really have uh, walls. And so the rain was coming in at an angle. So even, I was getting some shelter, but not complete shelter. And so I had this bivy sack, which is kind of um, uh, like a, an extra sleeping bag made out of tarpaulin that you can get um, in, that you can get to sort of wear over your sleeping bag to protect you from rain. And so I, so I, uh, someone had given it to me a couple of states earlier. Fantastically generous that. And so I put myself in my sleeping bag and then I put myself in the bivy sack and then I lay down to try and sleep. 
And as I'm lying there trying to sleep with the wind coming in through the side of the, the knocked out walls, um, I hear the slow sound of footsteps on gravel. And a chainsaw and started. Instantly, yeah, well, well, this close to the chainsaw. But what was really interesting about my predicament was that I sort of, I sort of thought, all right, well, what I should do now is sort of sit up very quietly and watch very quietly, and you, you try and react a, according to my best guess of what's happening next. But um, I sort of thought that. Well, it's possible that whoever this is doesn't mean well, and it's also possible that if this person doesn't mean well, they don't know I'm here. And it's very possible that if I sit up, given that I'm wrapped in tarpaulin, I'll make a lot of noise and thus attract attention. And so maybe the safest thing for me to do is just not move. And so I was just lying there completely um, ignorant as to my surroundings, just hearing these boots getting closer and closer. I think I pulled out my phone and whispered like some sort of last will and testament into my phone. Just have to try and dig up somewhere. And then the boots came closer, and then the boots went further, and the disaster was averted, and I never found out who, who that was. <laughs> your your brush was terror. Alright, well hopefully yeah. hopefully your upcoming US friendship tour will be much more comfortable uh, than your first one. What's uh, what's the plan? Tell us about it. So, uh, it started off with a, a sort of flash of inspiration, much like, um, much like with the uh, first tour, which was um, just, I think someone, a friend of mine mentioned to me uh, Ken Casey's uh, further tour, Ken Casey and the Merry Pranksters, their tour across um, America in, I think, 64. Uh, and that was it, like so. I, I don't know if, if if you're familiar with this tour or if your listeners are familiar. So in uh, 1964, uh, Ken Casey, the author of um, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, he got a um, he was heading from I think he was going the opposite direction. He was going from California to New York to um, to attend I think the publication of one of his books, and he um, he had this uh, he decided to like get a group of people together to do it. And they went and bought an old um, an old school bus that had been gutted and fitted out with bunk beds, and um, they painted it psychedelic colours. And they they schlepped across America in this this bus, um, having wild adventures. And suppose su- they were supposed to be filming a documentary, which I think only ended up being made in two thousand and eleven, which tells you something about like the hippie work uh-huh. ethic right there. Um, but it was apparently like it was one of those. Uh, moments that 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 kick-started what we would later come to understand as the whole hippie movement the whole the countercultural movement casey himself was sort of this bridge between um the beatniks and the hippies and um i think some of the people who later sort of traveled and played with him uh, became the grateful dead and it was just like one of these these moments of um uh, cultural power but also just wild adventure and I sort of, um, I, I, I sort of, as soon as I heard about that, I thought, I want to do that. Um, and it really started with that, with just like that sort of personal desire to, um, to follow in his footsteps backwards, and to um, to have a, um, to have a, a, a like a, a nice uh, cross country adventure. But what happened was, as the um, as the idea sort of grew, um, it occurred to me that as I have my own podcast that I'm um, uh, that I'm that I'm working on that I could take that across the country with me and interview people all the way along. 
and along with that came this um, this the sense of uh, I think the that it seems like I that there's a like I don't know much about America I'm an Australian and like I'm not directly enmeshed but um, it does seem like there's a lot of um, there's a lot that bits of America have to say to other bits of America that doesn't get said it seems like there are two entirely separate um, conversations going on in America and I figured that if I could go um, and just interview a whole bunch of people from both sides of that uh, invisible wall and try and try and see if I can understand them uh, in a way that other people listening who don't usually hear them could also understand them that maybe um, that could be some small step uh, towards Americans talking to each other and away from Americans shooting at each other which I don't know if it can or not. So, well, I, don't, like I don't think we shoot at each other that much. But, but you're, uh, not yet. We, we, not yet, we, we do enjoy scaring foreigners in remote query quarries, but we don't usually do that much <laughs> shooting. Um, but so this is not a U.S. friendship tour between Australia and the U.S. This is a U.S. friendship tour to bring Americans together. Is that your idea? Well, look, to the extent that I'm an Australian and I'm quite friendly by disposition, it's an Australian-American friendship tour. But I, I, to the extent that it's, um, you know, if if I go there and I say I'm an Australian and I um, and I and I come in peace, I think that the reaction will be like, okay, that's good. Also, so what? Because you know we don't really have any particular beef. <laughs> I think if I go, if I if I yeah, if I go interview someone at Harvard and say, you know, what what is and and try to hear what they're saying in a way that makes sense to the average right. Texan, and then go and talk to some Texans and try and see if I can hear what they're saying in a way that makes sense to New Yorkers, then that's, then that's actually uh, something worthwhile. That's something difficult and pointed. Right. I'm, I'm going to open the call in line. And uh, General, like you can't see this on your screen, but uh, people watching can see it. It's uh, Skype line is Skype Escobonus. There's a US phone number on 412-567-6798 or an Australian phone number on 02-8003-6853. We'd love to hear from you. I'm gonna leave those numbers up. Now, we're going to keep talking here. So if you're listening and you'd mm -hmm. like to call in, don't feel like you don't want to be polite, impolite, and interrupt. We'd love to have you interrupt, but we're not going to sit here and just wait uh, to see if someone calls. We will keep talking. But if you want to call, give us a call. We'd really love to hear from you. Uh, now, General Ike, uh, do you really think there's you know, any possibility of bringing people together in the United States? As an outsider, I mean, do you think it gives you any particular advantage in bringing people together? Well, okay, so so the phrase "bringing people together" is is um, already, I think, a bit uh, more presumptuous than I'd like. I I don't I don't um, I, I think bringing people together is it, to me it's it feels more like you got these people, you got these people, and if only we can. I mean, I I don't know if you're using the phrase in in this sort of sense, but. Um, sort of allowing people to bring themselves together if they want to is, is maybe closer to it. But to, to drive to the point of your question, um, yeah, I think I have an advantage in that, like, I don't have a, um, I don't have a, a team as such. It was this, there's this fantastic joke about, um, I think, a, a, a guy who goes, the joke's told many ways, but I, I've heard it as a, a rabbi who's traveling through Ireland and um, he's, hang he's, he's he goes for a drink in a bar 
and as he's sipping his beer, he feels a heavy hand uh, on his shoulder behind him, and he, and a voice says in his ear, Protestant or Catholic? And uh, the rabbi says, oh no, uh, I, I'm Jewish. And the voice behind him says, I, but Jewish Protestant or a Jewish Catholic? <laughs> <laughs> and the joke traditionally oh. ends there, but you know, I'm I'm hoping yeah. that um, that if so, that I can, by virtue of not being uh, being neither Protestant nor Catholic, so to speak, that I might I might be able to um, give an ear to both. Right. So again, let me remind people: we'd love to hear from you on the call-in line. Please do give us a call if you're free and you'd like to ask a question to General Ike. But until we hear from someone, I'll continue to ask questions of General Ike. Um, you talked about you know the division between you know, Boston and Texas, but uh, you know, don't you think they're the same divisions inside Boston, inside Cambridge, Massachusetts? I mean, what if you were to talk to uh, uh, you know faculty at, at Harvard Law School and then talk to cafeteria workers at Harvard Law School? You know, don't you think you'd have the same kind of two worlds, or even more so, than talking to people in different parts of the country? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, the, the short answer is yes. Uh, I think there's a little more to that. I have a friend who, who uh, works in Austin, Texas, and he says that he, um, that he, he and, all, and all his friends there are, are liberal, and they're... Um, you know, he, he says that of his of all the people he knows, there are dozens uh, of people there. He he can't think of a single Republican voter, and this is in Texas. Right. So I think that yeah, that I mean the the sort of two Americas, if you want to think of it that way, um, they have a way of segregating themselves out, not just by like sort of big geographical features, but also within, uh, and also you know the the obvious um, class parallels take place. Uh, I think what what. The advantage of actually traveling with it is that you sort of um, you sort of have a different um, uh, it's you know the phrase something in the water springs to mind is that like you you know if you go talk to people in in Harvard who are going to have a sort of Harvard oriented worldview who are going to be living and breathing Harvard and even if they're what would you say batting for the opposition they're still batting for the opposition from the starting premise of a Harvard of a Harvard-centered worldview. Right. Um, whereas, if you would go talk to someone in in rural Texas, no matter how liberal they are, their their starting position, in a sense, is is rural Texas. Does that make sense? That makes sense. But you know, as an American, of course, uh, you know, as an American, I'm not a uh, neutral outsider. Uh, you know, listening to everybody, but uh, it, it is striking to me that. Everyone I hear about, all of the intellectuals I hear complaining about the divisions in America, two Americas, we can no longer talk to each other, uh, are the people who used to do all the talking. <laughs> you know, so the, it's the Harvard, the Yale, the New York crowd, the Washington Post, the New York Times crowd. Those are the people who are upset about the new divisions in America. Uh, so there's some noise pollution on my side too here. Uh, those are the people who are really upset about two Americas. Uh, I don't think a lot of uh, people on Breitbart are upset about that. I think they're thrilled that there are finally two Americas, and you know that the discourse is not being monopolized uh, by just one group. I, I mean, so is that 
you know, two Americas and that tragedy of, you know, oh no, people aren't talking to each other, they've split in different camps. Is that a bad thing or is, is that maybe what democracy is all about? You know, I, I don't presume to uh, have the answers as to what democracy is all about, but um, it's. I think that it could be, it can be fine if it's if if what's going on is people who um, previously didn't have anything have anywhere to say anything they wanted to say now somewhere to say something they want to say. I think what the problem is that to the extent that. Um, well, I, I think my, my understanding of, of things is that it, it used to be a lot easier for you to be, say, for you to be a Republican and to have Democrat, Democrat voting friends or the other way around. Um, now, I, I read something, um, read a, f- a figure a while ago that uh, it, the, average, the average American would be about twice as upset if, if their child came home um, and announced that they were dating someone who voted differently, as opposed right. to someone of different uh, religious or racial um, origins. And I think that that's right. that's intense, right? Like the idea that we that even now, obviously these things are, are real issues, like the divisions along. Um, I, I mean, maybe not in America as much religious lines, but certainly racial divisions are really powerful. And and to to think that political divisions are twice as powerful as that. I, I, I think like that, that it can be healthy if like what it's giving people is a voice you might not otherwise have a voice but I think to the extent that it, it means that Americans no longer think of themselves as in a um, in a sort of as one team trying to work out the differences and think of themselves much more as you know two teams trying to fight it out for domination so that I, might be see I might turn that around and, and say but maybe it means that the two parties are finally standing for different things and for a generation or two, the two parties didn't mean much. And so, you know, people didn't divide on party lines. They may still have divided on ideological lines, uh, you know, but the parties weren't representing those ideologies. And, you know, now that we see, you know, Republicans being Republicans and Democrats finally being Democrats, you know, maybe now as a result, we uh, are getting somewhere. Maybe. I mean, th- like that, that could well... It's not. I don't. I don't sort of look at at the at the situation. First of all, I don't look at the situation with a particularly well trained eye in general. Like I'm. I'm not. I don't presume to be a, a scholar, but as you, for instance, are. I, but um, what it it does seem to me that this is even if it's not entirely a negative development. Uh, it. I'm not. I, I don't mean to say that all the that every development along political lines right now is negative, and it could be. You know, if if you want to be. Um, positive or optimistic about it, uh, it, could, it you could yeah you could well say that people are um, actually what would you say actually standing for different things actually saying different things. Um, but even if you want to even if you want to take that perspective even if you want to say that that's what's going on, the there's still a, a um, an importance that it, it's still important that after after the after the two sides yell at each other about their differences they're still able to sit down at a at a table or a coffee shop or a committee together and and work together towards stuff because otherwise we've got just just chaos and bedlam right so we've got to wrap up in just a minute or two um 
Look, could you give us some details? I mean, do you have actual plans yet? Can people come meet you on your U.S. friendship tour? I'm sure that a lot of people who might be listening to this in the U.S. think, I'd love to meet General Ike. I'd love to talk to him for his podcast. You know, how can they do that? Well, um, they can. You can definitely come along. I, I should, I should be a lot more prepared in terms of um, communication channels. Uh, certainly, anyone who contacts you via your um, your own channel um, and who wants to come along is very welcome to say hi if 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 you're willing to. Um, but in terms of the actual, um, in terms of the actual movements. Uh, the the idea is around March next year to come uh, to come up to the East Coast, be around uh, start around uh, Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts, that area, right. and then move down through um, New York, Washington, uh, hopefully through uh, Charlottesville, um, New Orleans, Texas, uh, maybe Colorado. And then uh, Las Vegas, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and along the way in each of the major cities, um, try and have a few interviews, and then along in the major cities have a few interviews, maybe more um, pre-planned, and then along the way try and stop in uh, at, in the towns and villages of rural America and um, have some more spontaneous interviews, maybe a few town halls, that sort of thing. Great. And I just put the name of the podcast, Building Jerusalem, up on the screen. Uh, General Ike, I'm sure if people just search the Building Jerusalem podcast, they'll easily find it. Yeah, that's right. If you, any, any podcast, um, any podcast app, like iTunes or whatnot, just on any, anything, right. you should search and find it easily. So you're on iTunes, Podbeam, all the usual podcast sites? Yeah, I think, I think that everyone these days just pulls off Apple or Stitcher. Okay. Um, yeah. All right, so. great. General Ike, thanks for joining us on Midnight in America. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks to everyone out there watching and listening. Midnight in America is uh, a little bit on hiatus right now because of all we worked through some technical problems, but I hope to be back soon and you know, really going with a whole new roster of guests coming in uh, May or June. Thanks a lot, everyone, for listening, and thank you, General Ike, for appearing on the show. Thanks for having me, Salvatore. Aaron Walker and Daniel Kenny. This is General Ike, Building Jerusalem.